Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And today we are pleased to welcome on our podcast the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research, Corey Hofstein. We're going to talk return stacking and how this form of capital efficient investing can help us overcome not only a low market return environment, but also help us overcome our limitations as investors. And as we explore the strategy and concepts, we hope to shine a light on the person behind it all, possibly one of the most interesting people in finance. And if you don't believe me, Corey's got 55,000 social media followers to back me up. So let's talk life, models, and markets with Corey Hofstein. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, good afternoon, Corey, and thank you for joining us. James, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed going through some of your firm's earlier work, and there were a couple things that that really stood out to me. Uh, one was the discussion of the concept of folk numeracy. I guess it was labeled by Michael Shermer. It's a really neat way to describe why we really struggle with probabilities and how they confound us as humans. Love that one. Uh, and you also made mention of the birthday paradox, which highlights how we struggle with context. I think both of those were uh, were really neat ways to describe some of the challenges that we just have as as humans interacting with numbers. That's man, you must be digging way into the archives. One of the things I love to talk about is this idea that like the precision of numbers belies the accuracy, right? We can take we can use all these statistics and go out to 10 decimal points, but it doesn't mean it's more accurate just because you went out to 10 decimal points. You could be completely off the mark. But we think of these things as being more accurate the more decimal points there are. And I think those of us who take a more quantitative bent to investing, we are incredibly guilty of, of some of this uh, numerical wizardry that we can sort of weave great narratives around our numbers. And I, and I think it's for it behooves everyone to, to just recognize everything we do is shrouded in this big cloak of uncertainty and probability. And no matter how precise the number is, it's probably precisely wrong. Yeah. And if, if you're going to lie to somebody, do it, uh, do it in as many decimal points as possible. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the more, in fact, the more decimal, this is probably their correlation. The more decimal points, the more inaccurate the number is. <laughs> the, the more you need to distress the data, maybe. Huh? Exactly. So because we as investors struggle with context and we tend to misapply probabilities and trends, we chase and abandon. We chase those strategies to solve yesterday's problems and often abandon them before they have a chance to work. Is that the genesis for return stacking? Man, you, yes. In, in so many ways, yes. So I, I think to take a full step back, uh, the firm that I run and have been running since 2008, one of our, our large areas of focus and research and emphasis is just that diversification is good. Right. And I don't think anyone would really challenge me on that. It's often called the only free lunch in the investment world. But we we often think about diversification much more than just the assets you invest in. It's also the process by which you invest 
and even when you invest. Uh, a huge area of study for me is this idea called rebalance timing luck, but that is a whole other podcast that I could spend five hours on and would put everyone right to bed. But so for us, um, we've really carved out a niche thinking about how alternatives can fit into portfolios. But launching the firm in 2008, right into the 2010s, there was no worse time to try to convince people to buy alternatives than the entire 2010s, because there was no better portfolio from a risk-adjusted return perspective than a U.S. 60-40. Couldn't even get people to diversify outside of U.S. stocks by the end of the decade, right? All you needed to do was buy a U.S. 60-40. And for the 10 years between 2010 and 2020, I think it was the highest realized sharp ratio going back to the early 1900s for a 60-40 portfolio. You looked at the alternatives that had gotten a little popular, things like managed futures and those sorts of strategies. They really languished throughout the decade. And the frustration a lot of investors had ultimately was to include these alternatives, I have to sell something else, right? We call it the funding problem. What are you selling? What are you funding your alternative position with? And ultimately, not only um, are you talking about what's the return of that alternative, hopefully it's positive. But what's its relative return to what you sold? Well, if you sold stocks and bonds in the 2010s to buy alternatives, it, it wasn't a fun ride, right? You were underperforming. You know, even if your risk-adjusted returns were better, ultimately, investors need to eat total returns. And so the idea of return stacking, um, it, funny enough, it, was, it was, came out of a conversation on Twitter in 2017. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think this stuff is inspired by, by Twitter conversations among anonymous users, but... Um, there was this concept born in the 1980s by PIMCO called Portable Alpha. And a lot of the conversation in 2017 was, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to take these concepts and bring them downstream to retail financial advisors, individual investors, and small institutions? Um, and that's where sort of from 2017 through last year, sort of hammering on how to actually package these up in accessible products like mutual funds and ETFs, what combinations are actually feasible of asset classes and alternative investment strategies, um, and then ultimately just trying to bring them to market and rebrand them in a way that was, we think, more accessible. That was really the birth of return stacking. So I'll full pause there because I know that was a lot to digest, but I think um, probably deserves to go a little bit into what portable alpha is for people maybe who haven't heard of it, because I think that'll really inform then what return stacking is. Yeah, so let's let's back up just a bit, and and let's assume that I'm an investor with newly minted cash. I've sold a business, I've sold real estate. Walk me through how I would implement a return stacking approach in developing that newly minted portfolio. Yeah, so let's talk about how institutions typically think about this problem, right? Because whether you're an individual or an institution, I think ultimately we face a lot of the same problems as we have these far-dated liabilities, whether they're pension uh, pension payments that are owed or whether it's your own retirement, right? You have these far-dated liabilities and ultimately you're investing to try to meet those liabilities. The way a lot of institutions approach this, particularly the larger ones, is they think about the asset allocation they want to invest in. Um, and they think about separating what we'll call the beta from the alpha, right? Your beta is your very cheap, low-cost, passive market exposure, like the S&P 500 or core U.S. fixed income. All the other active decisions 
you know, the sexy hedge funds or the active stock picking, hopefully that stuff generates the alpha, right? The excess return above the benchmark. One of the problems becomes if I want to allocate money to a hedge fund that's doing all the alpha stuff that I think is interesting, it means I don't have money to invest in the beta. And we probably have a lot more confidence over the long run that the beta is going to earn us the, the majority of our return, right? We want that beta. We need to take the risk in stocks and bonds to ultimately earn the return. So for every dollar I take away from the beta to put in the sexy alpha, I'm giving up some high confidence long-term return profile. So what institutions did is they said, well, actually there are these instruments out there. Instead of taking $100 and buying $100 of stocks or an S&P 500 ETF, we can take a $10 and buy S&P 500 futures contracts, right? So these are derivatives that give me the exposure to the upside and the downside, a uh, full upside and the full downside of the S&P 500. But instead of having to spend $100, I only need to post, say, $10 of collateral. And then I can take my other $90 and put it in that hedge fund. And so in doing so, I basically get the full exposure to the S&P, all the upside and downside movement, and then I get this hedge fund exposure as well. So I get all my beta and I get the alpha. And so this concept is called portable alpha. You're basically replicating the core beta that you want uh, using much more capital efficient derivatives like, like uh, futures and swap contracts, um, and then you're investing your cash in the alpha. The problem is 99% of advisors and individual investors are not going to do this, right? Institutions might do it. They've got entire desks dedicated to it. But not only is it operationally complex, um, but there's a whole lot of risk associated with it from a, from a compliance and regulatory perspective that's going to prohibit, prohibit a lot of people from being able to access it. Sure. And so the whole idea of return stacking is, can we take this concept and put it together into a mutual fund or an ETF? so that everyone can access it and that it's being professionally managed by, by someone else. And that's what return stacking is ultimately trying to do is give you the core betas that you want, as well as these alternate access to these alternative investments that can be layered on top of your portfolio so that you don't have to make this funding decision so that you can retain your core stocks and bonds and get the alternatives on top. And, and if we were to break open that ETF or that mutual fund, we'd find an allocation that, uh, let's assume we're a 60-40 investor, we'd find something that's 60% equities, or, or at least tied to it, either through a derivative or through actual ownership. We'd find something that was 40% fixed income that was tied to it, either through derivatives or actual ownership. Uh, we'd also have to have collateral as part of our stack. We'd have to have cash as part of our stack. Yep. And we'd probably have to have uh, a managed future or CTA or something in there that's actually serving to drive that sharp ratio as we get a larger and larger allocation to stuff, right? Yeah. So is, let, is that let me, a really horrible way to describe that? No, you you're, you you got it. So let me, let me let me try to make it concrete with two examples, two quick examples. So and and I'll give specific ETFs. There's a Wisdom Tree ETF called the U.S. Efficient Core. NTSX is the ticker. And what NTSX does is for every dollar you give them, they take 90 cents and invest in 
um, the top 500 largest companies in the United States. So uh, something close to the S&P 500, but not quite the S&P 500. They then take the extra $10, uh, the 10% that's left over, and they invest it in short-term T-bills, which serve as collateral to buy uh, 60% notional in treasury futures. So when you look at it, it's basically 90% stocks, 60% bonds, which adds up to more than 100, right? You're getting 150% exposure. Every dollar you put in, you're getting $1.50 of exposure. Really, what it is, is it's a 60-40 portfolio levered up 1.5 times. Now, why is this useful, right? Well, you could just say, hey, if I'm a super aggressive growth investor, instead of putting all my money in stocks, I could put my money in a levered 60-40. And I think the data would probably suggest Cliff Asness at AQR has done studies on this. Jeremy Schwartz at Wisdom Tree has done studies on this. That that portfolio is actually, over the long run, going to deliver a better total return and a better risk-adjusted return. So that's maybe one use. I would say, well, what if we did something else? What if you were a 60-40 investor? And you took two-thirds of your money and put it into this single ETF. So this ETF that's levered up 1.5 times, if you put two-thirds of your money in, I'll let everyone grab their calculators and do the math, two-thirds times 1.5 times gets you back to 100%. So you get to spend two-thirds of your money to get the full exposure to a 60-40. Then you have one-third of your money sitting there in cash. And you can do whatever you want with it. You could leave it in cash if you're someone who likes having that cash to have to deploy opportunistically. You could invest it in maybe super short-term, high-quality bonds, try to outperform the cash rate, add just a little bit of return on your 60-40. I would argue you could try to find another leg of the stool that adds more diversification. Stocks and bonds historically don't do well during inflationary environments. Can you find something that will do well? Maybe commodities or an active strategy like managed futures. And what you do in effect is you're getting that 60-40 exposure uh, with two-thirds of your capital. The one-third that's left over, whatever you put in there, you're effectively layering on top. So if you put managed futures in there, as you suggest, you end up with a 60-40 portfolio with an extra 33% in managed futures layered on top, which is exactly, again, how sophisticated institutions have been allocating. Now, if you give me 30 more seconds to just tie that with another example, we recently launched an ETF called the Return Stacked Bonds and Managed Futures ETF, ticker RSBT. The idea is for every dollar you give us, we're going to give you a dollar of bonds and a dollar of managed futures. And so what you could do is if you were a 60-40 investor and you wanted to do the same thing I just explained, well, you could leave 60% of your money in stocks. You could leave 6.6% um, of your money in bonds and then put 33% of your money in our ETF. And that net exposure, when you put it all together and sort of x-ray through it, ends up being, again, you get 60-40 exposure plus 33% managed futures overlay. So there's more of these products coming to market. They're all sort of building blocks that you can blend together to create sort of whatever type of exposure you want with the ultimate goal being Let's maintain the strategic stock and bond exposure investors want and use it to introduce diversifying alternatives as an overlay to the portfolio. Got it. And so as we go through that overlay uh, analysis, that's that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Because if we get away from the blank slate, 
uh, to the real world and we think about, you know, whether you're, you know, a, in real estate construction, whether you're a software engineer, portfolio developer, what have you, generally one of the more difficult things is to build a new system on top of an already existing ecosystem. It sounds almost like the return stacking approach might give you a little bit more flexibility to change what's already existing in your portfolio without having to undergo a, a full rehab or a full remodel. Is that is that a fair statement? That's our goal for sure, right? To go back to the original problem we were trying to face, again, if you wanted some of these diversifying alternatives and you were a 60-40 investor, you had to sell some of your stocks and bonds to introduce managed futures. So maybe you wanted a 20% allocation to managed futures Maybe you sold 10% from stocks and 10% from bonds, and you ended up being something like a 50, 30, 20. And then all the 2010s, you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Finally paid off recently, but it took a decade to get there, right? Versus with these sorts of approaches, again, that that institutions have been using going back to the 1980s, um, what you could theoretically do is just replace some of your bonds with a product like ours that I talked about to get that managed futures overlaid on top of the 60-40. So you don't have to reconfigure your entire portfolio. You can think about the additive properties. And the reason we like to call it return stacking is, again, I think it makes it versus, say, portable alpha, which is how it's talked about in institutions. I think we're hopefully return stacking makes it very clear. We're trying to add these returns together. And so if they're both positive, it's additive to your long-term returns and accretive. If they're uncorrelated, hopefully it'll help reduce your volatility. The risk, we hope, is equally transparent. If you're adding something on top of your existing portfolio and it all goes down at the same time, you're going to lose more money. And when we look at that, you know, we look at the efficient frontier, of course, and we're going x-axis volatility, y-axis expected return. As long as someone knows kind of where they sit on that in terms of their existing portfolio, then return stacking, as you're explaining it to me, allows you to really make moves across all of those areas, whether you're you're wanting to try to generate the same level of return uh, with less risk, whether you're able or willing to take the same risk and want more return or any number of things. I mean, you could find yourself at a point where based on what's happened in the market, I, I would imagine the average 60-40 investor at the end of 2019 was in a position where they probably knew internally, or you know, maybe they didn't, but they probably knew that they'd had a really good 10-year run. And if there were a way to you know, make something additive to that that existing portfolio that would have nudged their portfolio performance across that, especially if you're working with, you know, endowments and, and foundations and things like that. Uh, I think people would be really amenable to that. It's just been very difficult to make that change without, as you say, borrowing from one pot of money that has been successful to fund another one. You know, it's always just difficult for the human the human investor, institutional or otherwise, to do. Let's talk about some potential objections. So I'm going to set up uh, a couple mythical pitch meetings for you. Uh, the first one's going to be kind of interesting. You're going to have a brown bag lunch with John Bogle uh, in Valley Forge. We're going to bring him back to life so you don't have to worry about that. We'll handle that part of it. 
If you were going to pitch return stacking or explain it to John, what do you think his primary objection would would be to it? And how would you address it? I think I would expect John's first objection. By the way, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what he did for this industry. I think his first objection would be the objection he had to almost all things, which is, does it is is it justified by the cost, right? And is the extra complexity worth it? And I think what I would try to point out is that in the construction, right, when we think about sort of the core betas, again, stocks and bonds, you can buy exposure to large cap U.S. equities for three basis points, right? You can buy exposure to U.S. Uh, core fixed income for three basis points. I basically mark that up as free. So the way I think about this is when we put one of these return stacking portfolios together, we have to assume the beta component that we add is free. And then all of the fee that we need to run the vehicle, um, the operations behind the scenes, make sure that we're earning enough profit, that this is a sustainable business venture. All of that has to come from the extra thing we add on top. So I think John would say, look, you know, the 60-40, it's simple, it's easy, it's tax efficient, it works. I would agree 100% and I would say that's exactly why I'm trying to keep it. And I'm trying to do, make sure everything I do is additive, right? So I'm trying to give you the same super low cost, hopefully tax efficient core betas and stocks and bonds. You can make, you can keep all that. I'm just trying to layer something on top. John, you baked a brilliant cake. Let me just add some icing. Oh, I like that. He, he, he might even like that if it, you know, after the blow. It depends hand, if he's he a sweets that. guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Okay. I'm going to give you another shot then. So your afternoon meeting is with Warren Buffett and he's quoted as saying that combination of ignorance and leverage yields some interesting results. And I, I don't think he meant interesting in a good way. Uh, I'm assuming that his version of interesting is a warning to people to you know, tread lightly on the use of leverage. And obviously you can't own more than a hundred percent of anything without leverage. So let, let's assume that a part of your presentation to Warren would be explaining that your use of leverage is not combining ignorance and leverage, but combining something that's actually beneficial. Yeah. So Warren Buffett, I think was also credited as saying uh, derivatives are a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and yet has historically profited handsomely from derivative trades. Yeah. Warren Buffett is very much the It's kind of hard I to say. own a reinsurance company without uh, without right. doing do that. as I say not as I do. <laughs> you you look at his returns and it's basically he buys high quality low risk stocks and then he levers them up 1.6 times with his reinsurance company. Now um, with the float, there's all sorts of benefits to the structure he's developed. He, um, right. No one's withdrawing capital from him. The permanent capital structure makes the leverage much more feasible. What I would say to Warren is, you know, the, the reality is almost every investor in the world has leverage somewhere in their life. Um, anyone oh, who such a good point. Yeah. Anyone who owns a house, right. If you have a mortgage, that's leverage. You took a tremendous amount of debt to buy an asset. 
and you basically get all the upside in excess of the debt you owe, and you're going to take all the downside. Uh, that's what leverage is, and, and people are very comfortable with it because there's the tax benefits, and um, but that that's leverage, right? We're trying to do the same thing. I think when the other example I'll give is if you buy the S and P 500, the average corporation, the S and P 500, is three turns of debt. They're all levered up as well. So you're you're buying leverage implicitly in the companies. So we're not inherently afraid of leverage. I think sometimes we just don't like to know it's there. We sort of like it to be hidden. What I would <laughs> argue do, yeah. is, right? Like, what? Why is it better for an investor to hold a hundred percent equities? versus to take a much more diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and commodities and alternatives that historically have a very low correlation of stocks and bonds, right? So managed futures, I know we keep bringing this up. Managed futures as a strategy going back to the early 2000s has basically performed somewhere between stocks and bonds, has historically exhibited almost zero correlation of stocks, zero correlation to bonds, and has performed his, historically very well during every major equity crisis over the last 20 plus years. The dot-com, 2008, did decently during March 2020, and did very well last year. Like When you describe that asset class on paper, of course you would hopefully want to make room for it. I would argue, why is it better to have an investor who's young, 100% invested in equities, highly concentrated in a single asset class, that can go down 50% plus in a year versus a much more diversified portfolio that's levered to the same risk level. Why is that riskier just because we introduce leverage? You know, I would argue it, it's not. The, the other example I'll give is um, if we take short-term U.S. treasuries, which have very little volatility, and we lever them up 10 times, they have historically exhibited less volatility than if you just bought a 20-year U.S. Treasury bond. So you're more likely to, from a probability perspective, you're more likely to lose money in a 20-year U.S. Treasury bond than your levered two-year position. But we just think the leverage is riskier. I think Warren Buffett would agree. It's a much, leverage is not inherently evil concentrated leverage is where you can get in trouble. If you look at every major financial catastrophe, leverage is there. But it's not leverage on its own. It's concentrated leverage. It's using leverage to do two and three times exposure to stocks rather than using leverage to unlock the benefits of diversification. Yeah, but really whether we're using duration in bonds or heavy allocation in equities or leverage across the portfolio, our, our goal simply is to increase the rate of return. And as we're trying to increase that rate of return to monitor what that risk level ends up being. So obviously to get to where you've gotten, uh, you've, you've built many a model, I'm sure, and, and done lots of back testing to, to prove this out to yourself and to, you know, people who would potentially uh, want to utilize it in their portfolio. Talk to us about what it means to backtest. And I think one of the things I, I, I remember reading from, from your material is that you feel pretty good about the way you backtest, don't you? You're, that's a, I, I, I know people who just, they agonize over backtesting and you seem to have a confidence in it. So what's yeah. your special sauce? Uh, my special sauce is I start with the assumption that every backtest is completely garbage. 
Okay, good. I, I, and, that, and that's really <laughs> it, right? I mean, don't trust any back test. Full stop. Um, look, well, it's like Jim O'Shaughnessy says: all models are bad, but some are, you know, some are, some are uh, useful. Maybe. Useful, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you look at um, you look at financial markets historically, and all we really have is a record of transactions, right? We look at the long term returns of the S and P. I think we should just be aware: all that is is a record of transactions where buyers and sellers met doesn't necessarily mean it was the correct price. It doesn't mean anything. So when we go back and we take all this data and we data mine it to death, it is just one realization of a possible infinite number of outcomes the world could have gone through, right? And so you have to, I think, have a tremendous amount of humility when you're back testing anything. Um, for me, when we look at back tests, it is not to look and say, how can we maximize returns? I very much try to go, and I hate the phrase first principles, but I very much try to go back to the basics and first principles and say, why do I think this asset class has a particular return? Given those return drivers, what economic environments do I expect it to do, do well in? What economic environments do I expect it to do poorly in? Same for alternative investment strategies. And then if I mix them together, how do I expect them to zig and zag in these different economic environments? And where's the concentration of my risk? I, I can't eliminate the risk, right? There is, I, I, there's a phrase I say all the time, risk can't be destroyed, only transformed. No matter what we do to a portfolio, we're just sort of changing risks. The way I sort of think about good diversification is when you have like a concentrated equity portfolio, you've got a huge amount of risk sort of tied up in uh, earnings growth, right? Uh, economic slowdowns. Think of it as like a big ball of Play-Doh or putty uh, that's in that quadrant. And my thought about diversification is that ball of Play-Doh and putty is, is risk. All you're doing is putting your hand on it, smashing it down and smearing it out across different other economic regimes. The total amount of putty is the same. You didn't get rid of any risk. You just sort of changed where that risk shows up. And hopefully it's not so much risk in any regime that it represents potential ruin to you, right? That's really what we're trying to do. So from a back test perspective, we very much like to start with intuition around expectations of when things should do well and when things should do poorly. And then we try to use the back test to confirm that intuition. So if I think a strategy should do poorly during a, an environment and I go back and I look at a back test and it does well, that's a red flag. Right, we're trying to just simply confirm our intuition, not try to figure out, sort of like back out from the data what works. We're trying to start with what we think should work as a hypothesis, um, and then and then use the data to try to statistically confirm that. Uh, but it's it's got to be both the pros and the cons of the strategy. It's not just find the strategy that always works. Yeah, or not, or, or not find the strategy that just worked, and then build a model to to prove it out. That's that's exactly. always uh, that that's the one form form of backtesting that uh, I have the most problem with. But uh, let's let's get away from portfolio construction and have a little bit of fun for a second and talk about a different type of stacking: gingerbread houses. Gingerbread houses. So you you've are, done your research. You are, are you've done some pretty amazing work in that regard. How'd you get into that? And uh, is well, it is it a is it a thing that you do with your wife? Is it a is it a cathartic thing? What what is it? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very blessed in that my I, I have a great family, uh, parents, uh, younger brother, older sister. And we started 30 plus years ago with this tradition that the day after Thanksgiving, we all got up and made gingerbread houses. And as kids, it was this is great. Our parents let us eat candy in the morning. And then somehow it just never stopped. And as we got older, it became a lot less candy and a lot more, you know, boozy eggnog. Uh, <laughs> and, and it became a lot more competitive, too, as to who had the best gingerbread house. And then significant others got involved. And we've been going for 30 plus years. So uh, every holiday season, we find some date we can all get together. And, uh, you know, my, my sister has a kid now who gets his own house. Like this is the ever expanding gingerbread house competition. I will say, uh, where I was very smart is I recognized I was not going to win on my own. I happened to choose a wife that is incredibly artistically talented. And so she comes up with the vision. She tells me what we're doing. I'm pure operations. She tells me to cut some candy. I just go chop candy. And then she does all the, the heavy lifting. But yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a great family tradition for us. Well, that's very cool. And that should come in real handy in a few years because, uh, as I, I think everybody who follows you on Twitter knows you're expecting, uh, uh, a child shortly. I am. I am expecting in the next week or two, actually. Yeah. So I, I think on, we've, we've, we've all enjoyed the perspective the of, uh, of getting your irrational fear, uh, you know, as you're, as you're building, uh, Building child furniture, thinking of names, all that good stuff. So. I don't know if it's irrational. I think it's very rational fear <laughs> from everyone I talk to. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm, I'm incredibly excited. I went from this is horrifying to I am just trying to bully through it with all sorts of blind confidence. Other people have figured it out. I'm assuming I can figure it out too, I'm, but I'm incredibly excited for it. Well, I mean, I, I think if I did it, anybody can. So that's... Uh... But as you're thinking about that, what aspects of your makeup do you hope to to see in your kids? Is there anything in particular that? Uh, it, Man, that's it, a that's a good question. Um, what aspects of my makeup? You know, if I if I were to say there's one, and I don't think I have any control about this. I think it's just pure genetics is is how it ended up for me. Uh, but I think one thing I'm very feel very blessed to have is just this very um, endurance type attitude where it's just just keep putting in the work every single day, whether and, and I can tolerate a little bit of pain for a very long time. Um, and that's true in athletic endeavors. It's true in business endeavors. And I think it's served me incredibly well. Now, that said, I cannot handle more than a moderate, a little bit of pain very well. I am, I am certainly a, a coward on that front, but I do think just the, uh, endurance side of it has been a, uh, trait that served me incredibly well. And I hope that's something I can pass on. Uh, I will say, I do hope that my kid inherits a lot more of my wife's genes than my genes. Uh, she definitely has some phenomenal qualities that I hope dilute my lesser qualities. So, we'll, you know, fingers crossed. So as we were going through and looking over your work and kind of going through everything, I always try to, I always try to come up with some adjectives that I feel describe the person that I'm going to talk to, because I, I think it's important for people to know the strategy, but also to know the person behind it uh, too. And so whether it's the, the diamond league that you're in, or I mean, there's just so many things. So I, 
we, we came up with these as a group, uh, curiosity, competitiveness, and collaboration. Those were the three that won the day. Would you agree that those apply to you? And if so, which of those traits do you think is most critical to your success? So you said curiosity, competitiveness, and collaboration. Competitiveness and collaboration. I feel really good about competitiveness after we've heard the uh, gingerbread story. So I feel good about that. Yeah. Ah, wow. Uh, I'm flattered by those. Um, curiosity, I love. I, I, I um, very actively at this point in my life go out of my way to try to be curious, which is sort of an odd thing to say. But I, I think when you're young, it's very natural to explore a lot of things. You want a lot of breadth. And as you get older, you figure out what you're good at and you get this tunnel vision and you sort of calcify because it, it, it's optimal, right? You, you figured out what you're good at. You can sort of repeat the pattern, but I think we end up, you know, there's a reason why as you get older, you stop playing with new technology and you stop learning things. Um, and so I've really tried to go out of my way to, to push myself to prevent that from happening. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that comes across. Collaboration is a big one for me, for sure. Um, I operate a, a boutique firm and I love collaborating with other people in the industry, getting outside perspectives. You know, uh, I host a podcast just so I can try to meet and learn from people. So that's a big one for me. I will say I am competitive but I, I don't think that's a, that's a, like a high trait for me, actually, honestly. Um, I was never some, I always played, you know, sports, uh, but I was never someone who was like super passionate about it. it to me, it was always just a game. Like I, I was, it was hard to like live and die by that stuff. Um, I want to do well, but not because I want to beat other people. I just want to do well because I want to prove to myself I can do well. And so I'm not sure it's a competitiveness of like, I want to, I want to do better than other people. I want everyone to do really well. I just have like high standards and expectations for myself that I want to prove to myself that I can achieve. Well, that's very cool. I hope you'll, I hope you'll play back that segment to, uh, to your kid one of these days. I think. Yeah. And in 10, yeah, in 10 years, he'll say that is not true at all about it. Dad. <laughs> I don't even know who's, who is this? Who are you, yeah. Who are you <laughs> describing? It's, I got a really quick, funny story about that. So my father was an entrepreneur and, um, when, when I was younger, he was very intense, not in, not in a bad way, but he just, you know, he worked really hard. He got really, you know, high pressure situations, lots of, lots of money on the line. He had VCs and all this sort of stuff and trying to build these businesses. And he would come home all wound up and, um, you know, so he, if he got in a situation sometimes where he was a little too wound up, you know, maybe like someone dropped something in between a seat, he would like tear the couch apart, like destroy furniture, trying to get like the keys between the seat. And we called it Hulk mode because <laughs> he would just lose his mind. He was so wound up. So I ended up meeting my wife after my father retired. And I would tell her these stories about how intense my father is. And for the entire time she's known him, she's like, your dad is the most laid back guy I've ever met. Like, what is this Hulk mode thing that your whole family talks about? So, yeah, who knows? I mean, I don't think I'll be retired in 10 years. I, I hope not. But, um, yeah, you know, you, you sort of it's those changing perspectives of, of uh, the people in your life. My wife has no idea how intense my father used to be. And he was the most intense man in the world, for sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, every, every addition you make to your life changes, changes who you are as a person. So you've got a, you've got a big addition coming up and I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll be, uh, 
a lot of fun and a lot of challenge at the same time. So let's go back to the uh, conference room. We're going to get rid of the investment moguls here, and we're going to have one final meeting. And it's not with an investment legend. It's just with an average investor, just someone who really wants to implement the 60-40 standard. They only have a passing notion of modern portfolio theory, diversification principles, but you know they, they have a significant amount of money that means something to them. Why is return stacking good for them? And if you could break it down into a sentence or a paragraph, what would you tell them? To me, return stacking is about building a more diversified and therefore more stable portfolio. Uh, the whole industry for the last 40 years has been implementing this 60-40 idea, uh, which does incredibly well during periods of deflation. But in periods like the 1970s of strong inflation, that's where you see the cracks emerge. That's where you see stocks and bonds start to lose money at the same time. And so when you're nearing retirement and you want to start taking withdrawals from your portfolio, stability is crucial. And so when you have just stocks and bonds, the big gamble you're taking is that the next 30 years are going to look like the last 30. But if they happen to look like a period like the late 1960s, 1970s, or early 1980s, that's going to put a lot of pressure on investors uh, in terms of the type of retirement they can live, because it's going to add a lot more volatility to the portfolio, which means that those, you know, trying to withdraw uh, ends up being a lot larger percentage of the capital. And so what return stacking really aims to do is give you that 60-40 portfolio you're comfortable with, but then hopefully layer on top thoughtfully chosen diversifying alternatives that can do well in those environments that stocks and bonds don't. And so it's all about creating a more stable, diversified portfolio, which to us means a portfolio that's much more suitable for investors in retirement. All right. One final question. Uh, asset location. So we've kind of addressed the why and the how uh, and, and even the when. Let's take just a moment to talk about the where. So capital efficiency isn't always associated with tax efficiency. Uh, and so if we start with that premise, is there, is there a place in the, in the overall asset location strategy of a client that's more suitable to this return style? And is there ever a time where the excess of tax or the tax inefficiency outweighs the efficiencies of the overall return stacking process? I love this question because the answer is incredibly nuanced. I wish there was like a really quick soundbite I could give you. It depends upon the implementation. So let me give you a really quick example. I mentioned that Wisdom Tree product earlier. It's an ETF where they buy underlying stocks and then add treasury futures. The ETF wrapper creates a huge amount of tax efficiency for the stocks they buy. And so when managed correctly, they basically defer all of your capital gains until you sell the ETF. It is So you can put that in your taxable account. But they've got bonds, you say, right? Well, yes, they are adding those bonds with the treasury futures. But treasury futures 
get what's called 60-40 tax treatment, 60% long-term, 40% short-term versus what would have been ordinary income at the federal rate if they were just in bonds. So arguably, potentially more attractive tax treatment, maybe not as attractive as munis, but munis are a different risk profile. You have to sort of consider whether you want treasuries or munis. Sure. So Wisdom Tree, arguably incredibly tax efficient as a vehicle. I want to I want to contrast that with Pimco. They have a product called Pimco Stocks Plus. This is Pimco again, the pioneer in this space, going back to the 1980s. Pimco Stocks Plus, their mutual fund buys bonds and then buys S and P 500 futures. So you get uh, for every dollar you invest, you get a dollar of bonds plus a dollar of equity exposure. This is incredibly tax inefficient. The mutual fund wrapper gives you no tax benefits like the ETF wrapper can. They're buying bonds and then they're overlaying with S&P 500 futures. Now, those S&P 500 futures have 60-40 tax treatment and have to be rolled every single quarter. So four times a year, you're realizing gains and losses at least. And it's going to get taxed at 60-40. So the, so the Wisdom Tree pr product... Now, by, they're both giving you levered stocks and bonds, but the Wisdom Tree product, potentially very tax efficient. The PIMCO product is the least tax efficient product in the world that you could probably imagine. So the long story short is it's, it's important to consider the actual vehicle you're implementing this idea with. Ultimately, what I would say is if we do this right, obviously we want to be careful with the asset location. Again, I want to go back to the cake analogy. Um, if we do this correctly... We get the cake, which is the 60-40. We're going to add the overlay of alternatives, which is the icing. That overlay may have some tax consequences, but to me, it's just like saying we're going to then scrape away some of the icing we put on. There's still icing left over, right? You still get more than you had before, um, just not as much as if it was all perfectly tax efficient. So you do have to be careful in the implementation the whole concept in and of itself is not tax efficient or inefficient. It largely depends upon the vehicles you're choosing. And, um, you know, if, if any advisor or institution is looking at evaluating these vehicles, I try to maintain a master list. I'm more than happy to, to discuss, you know, which ones are and are not more tax efficient than others. Well, and, and I think you could probably actually do that analysis or that breakdown while you were building the gingerbread house. That would be really, I, you know, my wife, my wife would be pretty annoyed if I wasn't yeah. focusing on the task at hand. Yeah, that, that, that would be really cool. I mean, maybe you just do it, you know, a side, a side one for business before you, uh, before you do the actual one at Thanksgiving. But Corey, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. What's the best way for uh, someone who's listened to today's pod and would like to learn a little bit more about capital efficiency and return stacking and, uh, and, and yeah, firm. Well, what's the best let way? Let me start by to, saying, uh, James, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure and a great opportunity. Um, for anyone who's interested in learning more, you can go to returnstackedetfs.com to find the product I mentioned, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at C Hofstein. So C for Corey Hofstein, my last name, and I am far too active on Twitter. Or you can send me an email, Corey, C O R E Y, at thinknewfound.com. Uh, and I love to engage with anyone and everyone who's willing to have a conversation. So please reach out. And for everybody out there, we'll link all of that information into our show notes. So they'll make it easy for you. And uh, Corey, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. And best, best of luck to you and your uh, expanding family. I appreciate it, James. Thanks so much. Thanks. 
And that's a wrap for this episode of A Voice from the Hills podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And for access to this episode and all prior episodes, you can subscribe to A Voice from the Hills on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcast. You can follow A Voice from the Hills and Silicon Hills Wealth Management on social media to gain access to all of our content. And we've also rolled out a new mini pod called The Stream. The stream is going to highlight timely updates and information and introduce important ideas and concepts in short but impactful three-minute micropods. You can subscribe separately to the stream on all podcast platforms, and you can access the stream through any Alexa-enabled device by simply asking Alexa to play the latest update from Silicon Hills Wealth. If you'd like to learn more about Silicon Hills Wealth and the services we offer, please visit our website. And as always, we cannot thank you enough for engaging with us. We can only do our best work when you are